football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Two weeks from tonight, we will be in Shenandoah, Texas in a shirt and tie, no winter coat, getting ready to see Mount Union. And, uh, well, maybe we don't know who the Purple Raiders are playing, but we can be fairly certain they are playing someone in the Stag Bowl after the events of last weekend. Keith, I know we talked about this in length, at length in podcast number 227, but did you get any feedback from people or see anything new on this that piqued your interest? Nope, not even anyone calling us haters and doubters. And while we hold no ill will, we certainly are doubting the ability of anyone to knock off the Purple Raiders before Shenandoah. But that doesn't mean we don't have three great games on tap this weekend and a fourth featuring a Muhlenberg team that has been playing outstanding defense and was dominant in round two. Mountain Union and Mary Harden-Baylor appear to have their quarterbacks getting healthier. Either RPI or Johns Hopkins is going to a semifinal, and we've got three elite programs, St. John's, Bethel, and UW-Whitewater, back in the round of eight. So as much as I poo-pooed the first-round games, these quarterfinals are shaping up to be when the getting gets good. That's Keith McMillan. He's our co-host here on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. I'm Pat Coleman, the editor and publisher of D3Football.com, and this is podcast number 228, season 12. Episode 29, we're getting close to the end of the season, getting close to the end of the calendar year. The reason we feel we can be fairly certain about Mountain Union advancing is, of course, not just because Mountain Union has advanced almost every year that we've had a website, let alone a podcast, but also because, of course, if you've been under a rock for the last week or so, uh, Brockport, the top seed in the eastern quadrant of the bracket, and Frostburg State, the number two seed, both lost on Saturday in the second round. Instead, Muhlenberg and RPI advanced to the national quarterfinals in that game. And Keith, uh, you know, although we've uh, certainly talked about these teams, those two teams, Brockport and, and uh, Frostburg, as being quality teams all season, and they ended up being, uh, you know, I think number four and number six in our poll, and on paper should have been quality opponents for Mountain Union if they got that far. The fact remains, A, of course, they didn't get that far, and I'm sure that even if they had gotten that far, I think people would have complained about the... I think anybody west of the Alleghenies would have thought that uh, neither of those teams deserved to be as highly ranked as they were. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly conferences where those who follow it closely think their third-place team could have been put elsewhere in the bracket and, and won a few games, you know, St. Saint Thomas out of the Mayak. You could even make a case for Harden-Simmons if it had been um, seeded where it belonged rather than seeded uh, against Mary Harden-Baylor in round one because they're out of Texas. That's sort of an old story here in D3, and we know they get the short end of the stick, and, and they have the the hardest road to, to, to Shenandoah. And I think as we look at the way the bracket's set up, we spent a lot of time on this in 227 where you got four teams with legitimate Stagwell hopes, or at least three on, on one side of the bracket, and then you pretty much have – Mountain Union and three upstarts, three teams that got this far by upsets. Uh, on the other side, you're basically looking at what we think is Mountain Union versus either Mary Harden Baylor, St. John's, or UW Whitewater in the Stag Bowl. All those matchups would be compelling, and we're not trying to dismiss Bethel, nor are we trying to overlook Johns Hopkins, RPI, and Muhlenberg. We're just saying that when we saw this bracket come out, uh, it looked like it was actually really well balanced because. The top eight teams in the poll were split in the, into the four quadrants. So we thought we were going to get Mountain Union versus John Carroll, one versus eight. Then we thought we'd get Brockport and Frostburg, four versus six. You, then you had Whitewater and Bethel 
and uh, that would have been you know five versus nine or or uh, actually nine was North Central. Um, five versus eleven is Bethel, and that is one of the matchups that that played out. And then two three in UMHB and St. John's. That matchup is also happening on Saturday. The upsets, you know, where Randolph Macon beat John Carroll, and then Muhlenberg dominated Randolph Macon. RPI beat Brockport in round two. Johns Hopkins crushed Frostburg in round two. Those teams earned their way here. They they beat teams that were ranked higher. And we're going to have to, uh, before we f- file our final ballots, we're going to have to put the TNT on the top 10 and, and blow the entire thing up. But that's part of the fun of the, the postseason. It just gives us what we think is a little bit of, of a unbalanced bracket as we sit here on uh, looking at the quarterfinals uh, of December 1st. I pick out a couple of things that you just said. Of course, one is that, you know, number two, Mary Harden Baylor plays number three, St. John's in a game that number two and number three, of course, you know, if you went by rankings, ought to play in the semifinals instead of the quarterfinals. You mentioned Harden Simmons as a team. I would have loved to see what Harden Simmons would have done in the quote unquote East bracket, you know, if they had been able to lift them out and play them over there, like uh, once upon a time we had Harden Simmons play Wittenberg uh, in the first round of the playoffs, for example, if they had been able to play through there, I think we'd be talking about them playing this weekend, let alone somebody like St. Thomas, who was, a, as you mentioned, a, a team behind two teams in a conference that got into the postseason. Right. I mean, St. Thomas wasn't even in the postseason, but you, you just look at folks who watch leagues like that. You watch the MIAC, the CCIW, the WIAC all season, and then you become very skeptical of these teams out east that may go 9-0, 10-0, but you need to see them earn it in the postseason before, before that respect uh, crosses the time zones, so to speak. And, uh, and certainly Brockport and Frostburg with that opportunity this season failed at that. And, and one of the reasons we doubted RPI and Johns Hopkins is because they each had a a regular season loss, and uh, Brockport and Frostburg came in without a blemish and had been uh, had been great all season. I think when you when you go back a couple weeks and and you look at what the committee was charged with doing as far as setting the number one seeds, you have St. John's who may have been in the discussion for a number one uh, had there been a, a a loss somewhere else. Had Brockport lost a game, had Frostburg State lost a game, they may have had to try to shuffle. Um, things around, but basically, what happened was Whitewater. It looks like you know got that the other number one seed on on this. Again, it's not geographic necessarily, but it's kind of on the Midwest North side of the bracket where St. John's might have been, and so St. John's gets put in to the the Mary Harden Baylor quadrant, and uh, and now those two teams have to meet this week in what will definitely be the biggest game of the postseason so far the only game featuring two legitimate stag bowl contenders from, you know, that we've for the past, whatever, seven, eight weeks, we've been realizing these are two of the best teams in the country. They're ranked number two and number three in the poll coming into the postseason. should be a great game to watch. It'll start an hour later than those uh, East coast games. So for folks at Mount union, watching Mount union Muhlenberg at Johns Hopkins, watching RPI Johns Hopkins. If you're watching from home, you'll get to watch those two East games. And then you should have two good finishes uh, in, in UMHB and St. John's and Whitewater and Bethel an hour behind. Keith and I and uh, Frank Rossi and Adam Turr will preview each of the four games uh, coming up a little bit later in this podcast. We'll also talk with St. John's head coach Gary Foshing coming up in just a few minutes. 
But before we do that, there's one more question, I think, kind of big picture question before we get into the rundown is, you know, there has been some talk all season now. Well, not all season, but over the course of the latter half of the regular season, you know, this kind of dichotomy. Is it that Whitewater is back to full strength or was the WIAC a little bit down this year? And, you know, the Whitewater beat everybody in the WIAC by 20 or more points. They beat Oshkosh 20 to nothing. That was the quote unquote closest game. And we'll find out, I think, finally, uh, starting perhaps this weekend with Bethel. And then if Whitewater advances, then going on to the national semifinals, we will definitely get a real picture as to which of those two answers it might be or if it's a mixture of both. Yeah, and I don't see why it can't be both. Uh, Whitewater is certainly back in the sense that they went 10 and 0 through the WIAC. They've uh, they've they're now 12 and 0 with a chance to beat a, a very good 11 and 1 Bethel team, be 13 and 0, get back to the semifinals. And then if they if they happen to go to Mary Harden Baylor and lose a close one, does that mean that Whitewater wasn't back this season? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the expectations are. I don't want to say expectations are stagbowl, uh for, for Whitewater because I think after going seven and three last season, getting back to this point to where you're a legitimate stagbowl contender, whether or not you make it, you know, if you run into the the team that eventually wins it along the way, was the season a failure? Maybe, maybe not. But I don't think Whitewater is where it was five years ago, where it's stagbowl or bust. I don't think it's where you know Mountain Union is still there now, and, and they've been in that place since shortly after 1993 (laughs) and and that's been almost nonstop for you know by the time it was the the late 90s it was the every year thing for mountain union and you know they skip a year here and there but basically um it was it was salem or bust and now it's shenandoah or bust and in another year or two it'll be canton or bust for mountain union but i don't think whitewater is quite there yet and so i i don't think i don't see why both of those things can't be true that whitewater is back and um, I forgot what the second thing was. The Wyack might be a little down this year. Hey, where are you going to school next year? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Big school. Oh, yeah, I think the Wyack was a little down. I think you had a few contenders in Oshkosh, Platteville, and Wisconsin Lacrosse, and none of them quite emerged as a challenger to Whitewater. And so Whitewater sort of ran through the conference in, in in over the course of the year and so the white wyack for the first time in several years didn't even get a second team into the postseason and uh you know that was the conference that a few years ago got three teams in we'll be back with the rest of the podcast in just a moment but i'd like to take this time to mention that the d3football.com around the nation podcast is currently available for sponsorship you could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can replace turf or influence the decision to do so. I, I expect to see a coach out there just replacing turf by himself. Maybe that's how it'll be done at Occidental, for example. But all sorts of things are possible by uh, sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. People are going to be looking for things to do in and around, say, Shenandoah, Texas, just to pick a locale out of a hat. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product or your service right here in our break. So think about it and drop me a line at pat.coleman at d3sports.com because you're missing out. 
now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, joined by Gary Foshing, the head coach at St. John's in his sixth season as head coach of the Johnnies. Now, of course, this is for our game day podcast, but we're recording it approximately an hour or so after the second round win against Whitworth. So first of all, Coach, for the listenership, we'll be backtracking a little bit, but congratulations on a great win on Saturday. Thank you. I, you know, Whitworth was a good football team and a I told our guys all week, uh, you know, we were going to be tested, and I thought we were, and uh, I thought uh, our kids really played well, especially the second half. I thought we really, really played well. Uh, big challenge for you guys upcoming this week, and I you know since we're doing this on Saturday, I, I'm suspecting you haven't spent the past hour breaking down Mary Harden Baylor video. So just kind of instead talk us through what is your kind of general schedule for preparing for this sort of thing? You know, when do you get access to video these days? What do you get to look at? And, you know, when does, how does that kind of coalesce into a game plan? Well, we'll probably get film later this evening. So, you know, Saturday night, uh, we'll probably get their film and we've already got ours ready to send out. So, um, you know, it's it's challenging when you have to fly, obviously, and we don't know when that's going to be. We won't know that till Monday. So, you know, the first part of our week, you know, Monday through Wednesday will certainly be the same as it's been all year. Um, you know, from that point on, we don't know, you know, are we flying out set, uh, Thursday late or, or early Friday? We don't know that. But uh, it'll be challenging for our guys. But, you know, we're in week 13 at this point, and, you know, you, you probably aren't going to put a lot of new things in. What you're doing is you're just – hopefully trying to keep everybody healthy and then try to, you know, you know, uh, get as good as you can with the stuff that, that, that you're good at. And, you know, I think that's uh, something we've been doing all year. We've been working on the things that we know we're really good at and uh, trying to perfect them. And hopefully that's going to be enough. This isn't like Division One, where you can go home and then perhaps watch your future opponents late at night on ESPN or something like that. So in the course of the previous uh, 13 weeks. Have you stumbled across Mary Harden Baylor at all? Have you spent any time kind of looking at what they're doing this year? Well, you know, we, we, I remember watching their game last year against St. Thomas. And um, so I know a little bit about what they do. And I know our uh, offensive court, our defensive coordinator just said that uh, he found someone, you know, on YouTube, so a few clips here or there. So we know they're really good. They're a very, very good football team with a great running back. Uh, Markeith Miller's really good. I know that. Um, so, you know, we don't know a lot about them other than what we've seen, you know, on tape, uh, you know, a few highlights here and there. Although I have a pretty good sense of what from watching them last year, kind of what they do. So, you know, once we get everything, we'll put together a game plan and be ready to go. This is your guys' first trip to the quarterfinals since 2006. So for a while, while for a long time, this was not at all unusual for the St. John's program. Now you've got, you know, yourself and a handful of your assistant coaches who have been in games at this level and have coached at this level, et cetera. But for, you know, for every guy who's putting on a helmet next Saturday, it's going to be a brand new experience. It will be. Um, and, um, you know, the good thing is our, our coaching staff kind of understands what it's like at this time of the year. And, uh, you know, we've prepared that way really the last two, three weeks, kind of in playoff mode. And uh, so we kind of know you've shortened up practices a little bit. You work on the things that you know you have to work on. And, um, you know, for our players, this will be new territory. But, you know, I, I like our team. I think they, they've been well-grounded all year. And they kind of understand, uh, you know, what's at stake here. So I'm expecting that we're going to have a great week of practice and be ready to go against Mary Harden-Baylor. You guys have a relatively new kind of all 
purpose bubble. I don't know if what's the proper term for that, um, a, a, but an indoor practice facility that you guys haven't uh, had for, you know, for all of this stretch. Do you have the ability to kind of crank that su- sucker up to 70 degrees to maybe simulate Texas? We do. I'm not sure they'll let us do that, but, um, um, you know, we'll try to, you know, this week we were only outside one day and that was yesterday. Um, other than that, we were inside the dome and it was about 40, 50 degrees in there. So, you know, I, I think, again, at this point of the season, uh, you can't worry about those kinds of things. Our, our guys, uh, you know, they've done extra work in the weight room and, and actually conditioning at practice. So, you know, I think uh, we'll be ready to go. You guys got Nathan Brinker back this week after uh, giving him a, a little bit of rest. How did you, what did you think about how he did on Saturday and what do you think his availability is kind of going forward? Well, he made it through a game, which was really important. Uh, he really hadn't played for about two and a half weeks. He played uh, two series against Hamlin, and then he didn't play in the last two games. Um, but I thought he played really well today. Um, this, the Nathan Brinker that we always see, he gets held a lot. You know, he's, uh, he's ferocious in there. So, you know, one of the coaches in our league called him the most disruptive player they've, that they've seen in our league for a while. And... Um, so I thought he played well. You know, he was conditioning. He was probably – I know he was really sore. I talked to him a little bit after the game. He was sore and tired. But um, he'll be ready to go next week. Uh, the the two Jacksons, and I know they're not at all alike, but I'm just going to say that. Max Jackson and Jackson Erdman performed really well on Saturday. Uh, we talked in the post game about the, uh, the big punt return that kind of swung momentum for you guys at the end of the first half. And then, of course, Jackson Erdman kind of did what he's done for several weeks running. Well, those two have been really key. I always call Max Jackson the quarterback of our defense because he's a four-year starter for us. He's seen everything back there, and and he's our leading tackler, which a lot of times if your leading tackler is your safety, you're probably thinking that's probably not good. But uh, he's around the ball so much, and uh, he's just been a key guy for us. And and, uh, in the return game, you know, there's nobody better in our league, certainly. And then uh, Erdman. I can't say enough about uh, the maturation of him from the beginning of the year to where he is now. Uh, and he started off the year really well, but the way he's played the last five, six weeks, I don't know that I've ever seen that in a quarterback here at St. John's. Yeah, I know we've talked about him and we've talked to him on this podcast. Um, there's a tradition of kind of Johnny quarterbacks getting to getting to have the reins of the offense a little bit, call their own plays, that sort of thing. How much of that does Jackson Erdman get? He actually does a lot. Anytime we go up tempo out there, he's calling his own plays, and um, he does a great job of, of uh, in the classroom type type thing. He's with our uh, offensive staff, Cole Heckendorf, our new offensive coordinator, and Josh Bungham have done a great job with him. Mike Ortz, our quarterback coach, has meetings with him all the time, so he's always well prepared when he gets into a game. He knows what to call and what to look for. Um, and I would say, you know, probably maybe 20% of the plays out there is probably, you know, Jackson calling him himself. Um, John died about, no, about six weeks ago or so. So, and it was not a surprise. Obviously, when you get to be in your early 90s, you, you don't have the element of surprise, I guess, when you, when you die. But how much does that kind of, it's not way on, right? But how much does, is that kind of present in the minds of, of Johnny's uh, coaches and players right now? Well, I think a lot, you know, even though our present day players never played for him or were even recruited by him, um, I think our coaching staff, uh, who all played for him with the exception of two of our guys, um, so 
we kind of understand what John meant to this place. And, and I know when he passed away, one of the things that I did is I had all of our coaches get up and talk about the kind of influence that John had on them. And it was, a, it was, a, it was an emotional time. But I think it gave our players a sense of who John was. And um, from that point on, I've kind of, you know, they, the guys talked about, hey, we're going we're gonna to win this thing for John. So I think he's in the back of our minds. We know how much he meant to St. John's. And, and uh, you know, his spirit lives on in us. I mean, we keep doing the same things he did when he was here. Our practices really haven't changed much. Uh, the philosophy is pretty much the same. So, um, you know, I think he's been a, you know, even though he's not around, still has a big impact on St. John's. I tell you, Keith, a win at Mary Harden Baylor on Saturday, and I think people could legitimately start talking about another season of Johnny Magic. Do you believe in magic? Remembering in 2003, the year that uh, uh, John Collardi passed Eddie Robinson, won his 409th career game, became the winningest coach all time in college football history, and the Johnnies continued their streak and went on and won the national title that year. Yeah, and that's obviously one of the more special years in, in St. John's history, but I think win or lose on Saturday, St. John's can look back at this season and uh, and say that this was a special season. The Johnnies are back to some degree. Uh, they haven't been to to quarterfinal round since 2006, and in that in that meantime, you know Bethel's been in 2007, 2010. Bethel went in 2013. St. Jo- St. Thomas, the St. John's rival, has been uh, to the quarters in 09. Uh, they went to the semifinals in 2011, Stag Bowl 2012. They were in the, the quarters as recently as last season. So, I mean, from a Johnny perspective, not only do you beat your two biggest rivals during the season, right, in St. Thomas and Bethel, um, you're back in the quarterfinals. You're playing a team that is one of the three elite teams in D3 besides uh, yourselves. So unless they get beaten 75-9, which is apparently not out of the question for a Mary Harden-Baylor game against the playoff team. I think the Johnnies look back at this season as a very special one. Obviously much more special if they are able to go down to, to Belton and pull off the upset. And then in that case, I think you got to start lining up some Johnnies and some Warhawks or some Royals to come down to Shenandoah and fill that stadium because if you knock Mary Harden-Baylor out of the tournament – uh, we're going to have a attendance problem in Shenandoah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's definitely true. Well, we'll continue to talk about St. John's as we uh, start our tour through this Saturday's bracket with the uh, game between St. John's and Mary Harden Baylor. I think the first facet to discuss is the dual nature of the crew offense, or more specifically, what happens if Jace Hammock doesn't play? He's the starting quarterback for the crew. He's been nursing a shoulder injury, and uh, backup Luke Borman was lost for the year with a foot injury a couple weeks back. UMHB was able to limit Hammock's reps in round two because they got out to a big lead against Barry early on. You may remember 75 to nine, uh, and they were able to let Denarian Thomas take things the rest of the way. They might not be able to get away without having all of their number one guys play deep into the game on offense, however, this week. On the flip side, St. John's knows it's going to have to prepare for both quarterbacks, and it's like preparing for two completely different styles of play. In that sense, it's not a surprise, and that helps St. John's. In addition, it looks like Denarian Thomas got an opportunity to throw the ball more in the second round and do it successfully. 
If he is shouldering a bigger load in the offense, he'll need to be a competent passer as well as a runner for Mary Harden Baylor. Markeith Miller is the kind of runner who can give anyone a hard time, but especially when you look at what St. Thomas running back Josh Parks did against the Johnnies in the regular season, averaging more than 11.5 yards per carry. I'm not sure that uh, Thomas and Miller account for enough offense to lift the crew in a game at this level, but with that and the defense, it just might be. As Gary Foshing mentioned earlier, Nathan Brinker got through his entire game at defensive end for St. John's, and that will give them a little bit of help in the pass rush. They didn't get a ton of pressure on a couple of their opponents down the stretch. I saw them play against Thomas Moore, and Thomas Moore's quarterback had a lot of time to throw in the first half. Whitworth quarterback Leif Erickson had a lot of time to throw in their second-round playoff game, and I don't think that's something that's going to help them a whole lot, obviously, against Mary Harden-Baylor. So that is a big issue that needs to be solved. However, Max Jackson, who we talked about with Coach Foshing a few minutes ago, definitely a playmaker back there. He's the quarterback of their defense at his safety position and is a guy who can definitely make an impact on the game, both in terms of defense and in the terms of of special teams. And then we haven't even really talked about the Mary Harden Baylor defense in this conversation at all yet either, or the opposite side of the ball in Jackson Erdman. We talked quite a bit about Erdman earlier in this podcast, earlier in the month of November. We talked about him with Gary Foshing. I'm not sure there's more that I can say other than the fact that the guy has played really well so far and uh, over the course of the last seven or eight weeks or so of this season. So that is the that's a key for me, I think, as we look at, you know, how Erdman does against the Mary Harden Baylor defense and how the Mary Harden Baylor defense does. I mean, when the when this season began, there was a lot of talk about how young those guys were, and I'm not sure that Mary Harden Baylor has seen somebody uh, or a team that is so a talented on offense and b wholesale committed to throwing the ball and throwing the ball well. So I think that's one of the key matchups. And then, of course, the other side is, you know, who is the quarterback for Mary Harden Baylor? How does the St. John's defensive front contain him? Can they do anything to slow down Markeith Miller or, you know, even Marquise Duncan behind him? That's a, that's one of the reasons why, Keith, I think this game is going to be so great. Yeah, I mean, Mary Harden Baylor has this blueprint and they haven't had to bust it out uh, in a few years now, uh, pretty much since uh, they've had uh, Blake Jackson at quarterback in the year they won the national championship. But prior to that, they've had years when they didn't fully trust the quarterback and they would buckle up in these um, deep playoff games and and try to win 16-14 or 21-17 or whatever and and just run the ball, try to control the clock, not turn it over. So if this game turns into that, which I I don't think it will, but if it does, uh, and especially if if Mary Harden-Baylor doesn't have its preferred quarterback, it has a blueprint that it can go to to try to generate some offense. We saw what they did with with Denarian Thomas last week. So there are some options for Mary Harden-Baylor if this doesn't turn into a shootout. I think the biggest thing, when when you mentioned that Jackson Erdman and the offense of St. John's going against Mary Harden-Baylor defense, and I just love when we get into this part of the season when we can really hone in on the teams and talk about more than just the main star. Yeah, I, I think the thing is, as good as some of the teams St. John's has played this season, you you know, part of the cool part about being in the MIAC and then having some WIAC teams on your schedule is you play teams as good as anyone in the country. But I don't know if any 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 team they've played has the combination of of upfront athletes that Mary Harden Baylor will use to get pressure on on Erdman and then have the guys on the back end, especially since they play a four two five and they'll drop into a lot of you know, complicated zones where um 
you'll get Erdman will have pressure coming at him, and then he'll also have to to try to throw uh, into coverage, or you know he may not be able to just rely on on his guys to to just go up and, and get a ball and win. So he'll have to be sharp. And if Mary Harden Baylor generates a couple of turnovers early, and in, in St. John's get it, gets into a place where they're throwing the ball a lot, I think that plays into into Mary Harden Baylor's hands. I think entirely fascinating matchup. Looking forward to it. And uh, even though. Uh, I'll be with Frank Rossi and Greg Thomas in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins on Saturday for a different quarterfinal. That the most compelling one by far is in is in Belton. If you hear the names Street and uh, Ange, <laughs> these are the guys I'm sure I've I'm sure I've butchered and probably forgotten incorrectly the uh, the name of the other tight end for uh, St. John's. Those are guys that uh, were a, a big part of the game early against Whitworth and certainly could be a big part of the game for St. John's on offense on Saturday. Keith, tell us about uh, Whitewater and Bethel. Yeah, I mean it's another uh, quarterfinal that I wouldn't mind. Being at you know if, if I was could clone myself or if the games were like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'd go to all of them. In, in all honesty, um, back in podcast two twenty seven, I called Bethel the wild card of this tournament. I'd like to revise that and give Whitewater that distinction too, because if you strip the Warhawks name recognition and you just watch a game of theirs, uh, you're left with a team that probably doesn't have the raw athleticism to compete with Mount Union or Mary Harden Baylor, but it does what it does well enough to believe the Stag Bowl is a possibility. The offensive line and defense have been outstanding all season and through the first two rounds of the playoffs, but the wins against Eureka and St. Norbert don't compare to what Bethel, UW-Whitewater's opponent this week, has had to face to get this far. And even in the game against St. Norbert, the Warhawks rushed for 397 yards, but they also got themselves through some dicey situations by the skin of their teeth. It was a 17-14 game before the half before Cole Wilbur threw a perfect pass to Mitchell Tess in the back corner of the end zone with five seconds left. Whitewater then extended the lead to 31-14 earlier in the third. And later in the third, they went for it on fourth and four, barely made it. They fumbled in the red zone, but they recovered. Cornerback Famous Hasty had two interceptions and a pick six, but he also gave up two touchdown catches to Samuel Staling and had a pass interference call. What I'm saying is Whitewater will have to tighten up against Bethel, which scored twice in its round two win against North Central on crisp play action fakes turned into long TD catches. The Royals have played St. John's, St. Thomas, and North Central, perhaps three teams better than the best team the Warhawks have played. The Royals play loose and look like they're having as much fun as any team I've seen all season. They won't be intimidated in their first visit to Perkins Stadium. UW-Whitewater played in the toughest conference and they have a good home atmosphere, but it feels like the intangible edges a team facing Whitewater for the first time, weather, size, level of competition, are all nullified here. So it probably comes down to the toughest thing to analyze from afar. That's how the two teams match up against the offensive and defensive lines. I can't imagine Whitewater will have as much running room this week, but they give a lot of formations, everything from empty to double tight end, two backs in the backfield, to Wildcat with direct snaps to wide receiver Ryan Wisniewski. They've also ridden Alex Pete and Ronnie Ponick as a two-headed backfield monster, and then they unleash Wilbur's passing as needed. Bethel, on the other hand, gets a lot of its rushing production from QB Jan Rosti, a Minnesota transfer who has 18 rushing touchdowns in 12 games. Sam Gibbis is a thousand yard back as well. And if the Whitewater defense falls asleep, Drew Larson and Joel Konecki can sneak behind the defensive backs. Bethel's also got a defense that is allowed about 13 points per game. So look for Whitewater to try to establish its running game early. And I wouldn't expect a super low scoring game or a high scoring one either. Probably something with both teams in the 20s and a close game. So as we mentioned earlier, if the other games get boring, this one will start one hour later than the two out east and should have a finish worth tuning in for. 
Kyle Kilgore. I really want to see him work. He's the defensive end, the star defensive end for Bethel, and I really want to see him work against the Whitewater offensive line on Saturday. Yeah, and Bethel had some nice plays against North Central, especially at times when they needed to get pressure on Brock Rutter. They were able to uh, to get it. There was one big one late in the game, and I, I think they generated it with a blitz, but there are other times where they didn't even have to uh, to rush extra men to get pressure on Rutter, and that is big, especially because Cole Wilbur, when he's sharp, he's sharp, um, but he's not known for his consistency over the course of a game. You know, the, the touchdown throws he had against St. Norbert, two beautiful touchdown throws, one to uh, Derek Umaro and one the one we mentioned to, to Mitchell Dest. Those are the kind of throws that only a certain number of guys in D3 can make, but they're also he's also a guy who's susceptible to, uh, to being rattled. So if Whitewater has its druthers, they probably like to get Pete and Ponick going and, and mix in with Snooski and then have Cole Wilbur come on some play action, some half rollouts, sometimes he can throw on the run and, uh, and have him throw like 20 times. They don't want to have him throw 35 times. That's just not Whitewater style. And I think that also enables them to get the best out of Cole Wilbur, which is, again, when sometimes there's, you know, third down or a play action play where he's on and he makes a beautiful throw. But I think if Whitewater has to rely on him too much, um, Bethel can, can get after the quarterback a little bit. Now let's send it out to Adam Turr, who's going to tell us about Muhlenberg and Mount Union. Muhlenberg is in the midst of a historic run. The Mules are in the national quarterfinals for the first time in program history. They've already tied a record by winning 11 games this season. What's even more impressive is that the Mules are playing for their third head coach in three seasons. Mike Donnelly laid the foundation for this program, but was unable to coach in 2017 and passed away midseason after battling leukemia. Former offensive coordinator Nate Milne stepped into the head coaching role this season and has his team playing with intensity. The defense has played lights out this postseason. To get here, the Mules held Randolph-Macon's rushing attack, which came in averaging nearly 250 yards per game on the ground, to just 29 yards on 21 carries. The key to the defense's success has been its depth. Well over 11 players see regular action on that side of the ball each week. Practices are a constant competition to earn playing time. Nick Sirico, not even one of the two starting cornerbacks on the team, has housed a pick six in each playoff game so far. The defensive line is a force led by Frankie Feaster. The junior devours opposing quarterbacks and notched four sacks in the second-round win. In their only loss of the season, the Mules held Johns Hopkins to 27 points, well below the Blue Jays' average. But Muhlenberg hasn't faced an opponent of Mount Union's caliber. The Purple Raiders are back in the quarterfinals, cruising to the third round despite limited action from starting quarterback D'Angelo Fulford. He missed the first round with an injury and attempted just 10 passes in round two. When healthy, he's been dominant passing for 34 touchdowns to just one interception this season. The Purple Raiders have not lost a game since 2016. The offense is balanced, averaging 243 yards through the air and a whopping 229 on the ground per game. Josh Petroselli has had a breakout sophomore season, rushing for 1,145 yards and 16 touchdowns. Jared Ruth and Justin Hill are the most dangerous wide receiver tandem in the country. The Mules have had a memorable run, but it likely ends here. The Purple Raiders are too dominant in all three phases to fall victim to an upset this early. Keith, I don't really know what uh, is, uh, man, I don't really know what to say about this game because I feel like this is a, a game where Mountain Union is just basically going to walk over Muhlenberg and is just going to be in a position to name whatever final score it wants to, uh, it wants to put on this game. If we were to strip the, the history 
from from this and just talk about this as a 2018 matchup based on what we know from this season. You'd still make Mountain Union the favorite. So so let's not get that part twisted. But a lot of this is we know what Mountain Union does at this time of year. We saw them score 51 last week against center in the first um the first half and that and that was a center team that scored 54 on Washington Jefferson in round one so uh, when when you get to Mountain Union the the level of competition goes up a notch or two or three notches and certainly Muhlenberg having beaten Delaware Valley with a pick six in the final minute having dominated Randolph making the level of competition is going to jump up and I think the place where Muhlenberg is really going to see the difference is in not just the skill players for Mountain Union, which we've talked about, um, D'Angelo Fulfer, Jared Ruth, Justin Hill, a lot. Those guys are just the type of athletes that uh, not too many D3 teams have. And if you have one, great. If you have three, that's amazing. But Mountain Union is is deeper than that. You, they, they get plays from their tight end, Luke Harrington. They get plays uh, out of the slot from Cole Moxie. They have gr- great running back in Josh Petroselli. Jawanza Evans-Morris is still on the roster. They don't, they don't even necessarily use him uh, as much. Uh, or at least I didn't see a lot of him last week against center. Um, they have just a, a overwhelming uh, bit of depth. And then defensively, I think the best thing they do um, is not necessarily make teams one-dimensional, which is sometimes the best thing defenses do. But Mountain Union, they really generate turnovers. Yeah. And, uh, and, that, and that means when that ball starts rolling, uh, you know, they get a, they get a offensive score, quick, a quick score, then all of a sudden another turnover. Uh, the the uh, the ball starts rolling downhill and, and a team like center, which is probably similar to Muhlenberg in, in some ways, uh, they they just it, it just got away from them too fast last week and there wasn't anything they could do. It's the kind of game that's been 70-30 or 70-21 or even 70-14 to 14 in the past and probably maybe a little bit low scoring than that, but not uh, particularly more competitive. But but this is what I meant about if we just strip the the names and the history out of this thing and say, look at what Muhlenberg has done coming in. They've played great defensively in the postseason, 13 points. DelVal, six from Randolph making 98 yards of total offense against the Yellow Jackets. Frankie Feaster has this amazing day where he has seven and a half tackles for loss. You got a, a guy in the, in the Mules defensive backfield who's returned to an interception for a touchdown in each playoff game. So if you were to take the names off the side of the helmets, and I know that's like the stupidest football cliche but it's like Muhlenberg is playing well coming into this game and it has reason to be confident it just does that confidence last past the seven and a half minute mark of the first quarter are they still confident at halftime are they still confident in the third quarter because part of the battle against Mountain Union is is a getting your offense put some points on the board because you know there's very slight chance you're going to have a a day defensively where you shut everything down Part of the challenge is hanging in there long enough to really make it into a game. And we've seen we've seen teams go out to Alliance and put up a fight. You know, Wesley, Frostburg have put up 35, 50 points, 59 points. But you have to be able to do it on both sides of the ball and on special teams. And you really can't miss opportunities against Mount Union. So if there's a play action pass early in the game and you got a guy wide open, Muhlenberg has to hit that. And if they don't, that's the type of thing that that you you, you regret that play because Mountain Union, um, when they get that ball rolling, it really happens fast. We have one game left, and we have one correspondent left, and oddly enough, they match up. From In the Huddle and D3Football.com, I'm Frank Rossi. 
There's just one team from the East region left in the eight quarterfinalists, and it's a likely four seed from the lower right quadrant. The RPI engineers will visit the Johns Hopkins Blue Jays Saturday in Baltimore, Maryland. Stop me if you've heard this before, but on paper, Johns Hopkins looks like a clear favorite. Their quarterback, David Tomorrow, accounted for 307 yards against Frostburg State Saturday, including 60 yards on the ground, and he scored four touchdowns. The Blue Jays have a strong running back in Tyler Messenger, who ran for 231 yards and four touchdowns on just 16 carries. Defensively, the Blue Jays held Frostburg State to just eight second-half points, despite allowing Connor Cox to amass 355 passing yards and two touchdowns. The two interceptions and two lost fumbles by Frostburg were key in creating the score separation in that game, as Johns Hopkins turned over the ball just one. Once. But the setup heading into this game is eerily similar to that of the RPI Brockport game last Saturday. RPI ran into a team that had scored plenty of points all season, but that had just a plus four turnover margin because of inconsistency this season holding onto the ball. The engineers exploited that fact by forcing five turnovers while losing the ball just once, and by getting Brockport quarterback Joe Germanario to force several throws in an attempt at a comeback on a wet field. You may ask, what's Johns Hopkins' turnover ratio after 12 games? It's a plus five. Brockport had a point differential per game of plus 35. Johns Hopkins has a point differential of plus 34 per game. The weather at Brockport included rain early during the game. Saturday's forecast in Baltimore is for rain and a high of 47 degrees. Where things differ, however, is in defensive consistency exhibited by the Blue Jays this season. Johns Hopkins has given up nearly 300 yards per game on average, with the 480 yards given up to the Bobcats Saturday obviously hurting that average. RPI was able to take Brockport out of their comfort zone offensively and exploited Golden Eagles defense that gave up 100 less yards per game, just enough to pull out the one-possession victory. The engineers would have to follow almost that same exact game plan again to beat the Blue Jays, and they may be able to do it if the Blue Jays' defense gives up 350 to 400 yards against a relatively balanced pass and rush offense like RPI's. So here's what to look for in this game by each team to see if they're in their comfort zones. For Johns Hopkins, the likelihood is that they need to set up their run early successfully to allow tomorrow's passing game to succeed at key moments. RPI's defensive line forced seven tackles for loss last week, including three sacks, and forced Germanario to fumble the ball twice in RPI territory. Ironically, the only team to beat Johns Hopkins this season, Susquehanna, tackled the Blue Jays for loss seven times in their Week 2 game. If the run by both Messenger and Tomorrow can't be set up early, then Tomorrow might have to force throws outside his comfort zone with a wet ball potentially prevalent all day. On the flip side, RPI quarterback George Marinopoulos needs to play a stronger game statistically in case the engineers' defense can't muster a turnover margin of plus three or better Saturday. At Brockport, Marinopoulos completed just 13 of his 35 passes for 142 yards, one touchdown, and one interception. While the weather may have wreaked havoc on the passing game for both teams in Brockport, the likelihood is that the Johns Hopkins defense will try to force him to win the game by his arm as the Blue Jays know he's passed for just 16 touchdowns against nine interceptions in 11 games this season. Yet one thing's for sure, Marinopoulos, just a sophomore right now, challenged Wesley in 2017 as a starter in the playoffs, won against Huston in the first round two weeks ago, and helped stun the entire bracket by beating Brockport Saturday. His experience, even with what some might call subpar statistics, could lead to this game being another close affair that the engineers can pull out for their first trip to the semifinals since 2003. Last week, I reminded everyone that we don't play football games on paper for a reason, and here again is a situation in which you can fold the paper into an airplane and throw it out the window when these two teams kick off at noon Eastern time Saturday. Back to two guys who hate my football cliches more than Brussels sprouts, Pat and Keith. Thanks, Frank. I actually like Brussels sprouts for what it's worth. 
I also like talking about turnovers like in the context of a single game. I think that uh, probably grasping really hard at uh, the turnover ratio through, through the 12-game uh, portion of the season, I think we might be overthinking this. Uh, but that doesn't mean that this is not going to be a pretty good game because I think that there's not any good reason to rule RPI out at this point. I think this is going to be a, a contest that they should be in. And it's they, they've been a solid defense in big games for, for most of the season. Um, with the exception of of the Dutchman shoes game, and we can now look back and say, maybe that was an exception to what the rule had been for RPI throughout the most of the season. But RPI had had been in some tight games and, and some games that could have gone either way, and they they found ways to win all of them. And, and last week was a lot of the same. But I think the thing that really stood out was being able to shut down the Brockport offense, being able to go up against an All-American quarterback and generate the five turnovers. They're going to have to do the same thing again because Johns Hopkins is as hot as anyone offensively. They're coming off the 58 points against Frostburg State. And if it was just we're facing this great quarterback, then fine. But it's not that, right? Because you, as we'll get to here in a second when we uh, when we spot check our on-the-spot picks from last week, Johns Hopkins had an impressive day on the, on the ground as anyone did last week. Um, so right now the offense, you know, Johns Hopkins does what it does, spread you out, spread you out to run, spread you out to pass. They keep the pressure on your defense. RPI is coming in off this great defensive performance against a talented offense. So we'll see how those two teams, how those two units clash. And then it's that classic thing where you're like, okay, we want to see the Hopkins offense against the RPI defense, but maybe it's it's George Marinopoulos and the RPI offense against the Johns Hopkins defense that makes a difference in the game. And, uh, you know, we'll find that out on Saturday. Time for On the Spot, and uh, Keith put me on the spot. Well, this one is, is simple, um, but hard at the same time. That's sort of the point of On the Spot, right? Knowing what we know now, off the top of your head, re-rank the top ten. Ooh. Ooh, nice. Okay, let's see. Going into, so if we were doing a, like if we were doing, if the season ended today, right? Right, and, and the, the background for this question is number seven, Harden Simmons lost at Mary Harden Baylor in the first round. Number nine, North Central lost to Bethel last week. Six, Frostburg lost. Four, Rockport lost. Number eight, John Carroll lost in the first round. So not saying that that's your particular ballot, but you've got about half of the top ten. That's bowed out of the playoffs and, and a little more than half still remaining, depending on where you had teams like Bethel and such. Okay, so I appreciate you talking because that gave me an opportunity to jot some uh, teams down while you were doing that. Um, hey, my, man, I'm, I'm a pro here. I'm stalling for time for you. <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, unfortunately, I only got through my top four, and I'm pretty sure those are four that uh, don't change. I've got uh, Mary Harden Baylor one, Mount Union two, St. John's three, Whitewater four. And so that's easy, more or less. There's probably at some point we're thinking about a team that that has lost and got eliminated here uh, somewhere in this ballpark. Right. That's what I was going to say. Do you move Johns Hopkins into the top 10, knowing what you know now? Now, they turn around and lose the RPI. It wouldn't be the the uh, the, the top 10 you file at the end of the season. And then Whitworth, 45-24 uh, at St. John's last week, uh, depending on who you ask. It was a say it was a performance that gave the Johnnies a little worry, or it was um, you know, about what what they expected. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think I definitely have Johns Hopkins in my top ten. Um, I probably uh, I've kind of slotted Frostburg in here temporarily at the ten spot, 
beyond number four, it gets kind of tough. So we at, at some point have to talk about uh, where does Harden Simmons go? And there's some there's some details left unknown, right? We don't know how other teams, the other really good teams are going to perform against Mary Harden Baylor if we're ending the season today. So I'm going to slot Harden Simmons higher than I'm pretty sure where I uh, ended the regular season with them. I'm moving them up to five. Uh, but that's also because Brockport is going to drop out of my top 10. John Carroll dropped out of my top 10. So there's room for them to move up. Uh, I think I'm going to slot Bethel in at six and uh, Johns Hopkins at seven. Bethel has looked good and Bethel beat North Central. So they definitely did something in the playoffs to merit moving up. They don't just move up because of other teams losing. Uh, if I got Johns Hopkins at seven, uh, I think I'm going to put North Central at eight. I know that's pretty high for a team with two losses, but they were you know, basically toe-to-toe with Bethel, uh, losing at home by three. So keeping them within a couple of spots of Bethel based on their end-of-season performance seems pretty reasonable. Uh, Whitworth at nine is uh, probably a step up for Whitworth. Whitworth getting passed by Johns Hopkins, but you know, again, on the way down, John Carroll and Brockport slide past them. And at the 10 spot, I basically, I'm thinking about Frostburg being the team that, even though Frostburg lost big, I still feel like Frostburg acquitted itself better in the playoffs than Brockport did. Um, you know, Brockport, who kind of, in the end, you know, you look at them, they struggled with framing them. Um, and then they really, you know, they lost quite uh, unimpressively in, in against uh, RPI, even though that game was close. RPI, a team that, uh, of course, you know, entered the postseason unranked, doesn't make my top 10 RPI. And so I don't think Brockport can either. And I'm just still really disappointed by kind of the way Brockport played overall this season. They had a lot of games that were close that, you know, last year either weren't or you wouldn't have expected them to be close based off of them going to the semifinals. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure I agree with you that that Brockport went out more impressively than Frostburg did that 58, 27, uh, the 29 point third quarter from Johns Hopkins was pretty, uh, pretty devastating, but Frostburg even more so than Brockport, uh, but, but um, and more so than almost any team in the country had some pretty good uh, wins during the season because the NJAC was so strong. Um, Wesley Montclair state Salisbury were all very good. Uh, eight win or more teams. Well, actually, Wesley didn't win eight games or, or even close to eight games, but they were in every game this season. Uh, they lost three times by one and, and once by two. So those are all uh, – there was some impressive regular season work that, that Frostburg State done that you may have to go back to some of this regular season stuff because there aren't that many great candidates once you get out of the top few. And then the teams like Bethel and Johns Hopkins that played their way into the top ten uh, everyone else, you know, lost or went out in an unimpressive fashion. The 12th ranked team in in the uh, in the poll coming in uh, was trying. They lost to St. Norbert 31-7. And, and whether or not you or I thought they were the 12th ranked team in the country, that's one team you can't bump into the top 10. You can't bump Delaware Valley, the 13th ranked team, into the top 10. And if you want to bump down John Carroll, Brockport, Frostburg, you know, it's like the same dilemma we always have. Somebody's got to go in that spot. And so I think you worked it out well. What if the MIAC teams both win this weekend, both go to the national semifinals? 
where does a voter who thinks like you and I do, you know, in this holistic sense, not based on where a team went out of the playoffs, but based on who they played and who they beat and who they lost to, where does that person rank St. Thomas? It's a great question, and it's uh, one we would probably want to answer uh, when we have that information. But yeah. I'll tell you that I had St. Thomas in the in the final vote. I had him at least in the uh, in the top fifteen. I'm trying to look this up right now, and my stalling is not working all that well, uh, or maybe I'm just not scrolling fast enough. My final ballot had St. Thomas at sixteen, um, right ahead of Barry and right behind Illinois Wesleyan. So. I, I think you make a good point if St. especially if St. John's beats Mary Harden Baylor, Bethel beats Whitewater. Well, then you got, you know, maybe two of the top five teams in the country are, are the Mayak teams. Maybe that St. Thomas um, having those two losses to just those two teams and, and dominating everyone else that played, maybe that makes them a top 10 team. All right, here's my on the spot question for you, Keith. At the time at which the RPI Johns Hopkins game ends, and you can turn your attention completely to games that start at 1 o'clock Eastern. Which one will have the closer score, the Bethel-Whitewater game or the St. John's-Mary Harden-Baylor game? I'm all in on Bethel-Whitewater being the closer of the two games, partially because I think the style of of both the Royals and Warhawks lends itself to that sort of game where um, neither one. They both have dominated over the course of the season with having a nice running game and, and and being able to run some play action passes or, or you know make some plays down the field off the off the running game and then they've both had great defenses i think probably keeps this game that game into the the maybe high teens but probably 20s for both teams so you know something like a 27 17 or a 27 20 or 27 23 28 24 that type of game is what i would expect out of whitewater or bethel mary harden baylor st john's might be at the time of your question, might be a one or two score game, but I think ultimately um, the crew pulls away in that one and, and maybe wins it by 14 or 17 or something. If either, if either of us gets that correct, of course, we'll uh, mention it next week in Spot Check. As we look at uh, last week's on-the-spot questions, uh, I asked Keith to identify the leading passer and leading rusher from the second-round games. Keith picked Jackson Erdman as a leading passer and was so close as Jackson Erdman threw for 305 yards, but it was Whitworth quarterback Leif Erickson who was the leader in passing yards last Saturday, throwing for 311. Keith picked Josh Petroselli if D'Angelo Fulford did not play for Mountain Union on Saturday, or Whitewater's Alex Pete if Fulford did, but it was, of course, actually Johns Hopkins back Tyler Messenger who delivered 231 yards on 16 carries for the Blue Jays. Not that Alex Pete had a bad day or anything. But. No, and nor did Petroselli. 18 for 162, and uh, Pete was uh, right in that ballpark, too, with 150-something. It's just Messenger was <laughs> a guy. That's a, The first time we ever talked about Tyler Messenger was in a big way. True. Uh, Keith asked me to pick which games would which game would be the most watchable from uh, from top to bottom or from bottom to top. The most watchable game had to be the Royals win versus North Central because, A, it was a competitive game, and, B, it also came with an awesome broadcast. So if that was part of what you considered watchable, that had the combination of both. I picked that as uh, thinking it would be the third most watchable game. I notably missed on the Muhlenberg-Macon game. I had that at number two, uh, and it was fairly non-competitive. The RPI-Brockport game was fifth on my list, but it was probably the second most watchable if you didn't mind the low resolution on the broadcast stream and if you muted the sound. 
Uh, Whitewater versus St. Norbert was better than advertised, but that's because I advertised it at number eight. Uh, Mary Harden, Baylor, Barry, Mountain Union Center were not better than advertised at seven and six. And Frostburg State, Johns Hopkins, which was my top pick, was not the best game, not the game it made it out to be. It was still watchable for almost three quarters. Now we have to score quick hits. I'm not having I'm not having fun with quick hits this postseason, Keith. I mean, I'm having fun picking games, and I'm having fun forgetting about my picks when it's all said and done. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you're having the forgettable postseason, and you you know usually the postseason early round picks are kind of easy, and if you're keeping score at home, which you probably shouldn't be because it's about the the players and the games, and not really about us and our picks. But it's it's not that hard to get. 13 or 14 first round games, but this is a year where you've had some upsets and then you've had, you have the natural toss up games and, and you miss a few of those. And suddenly you're uh, you're 12 and four in round one. And, and, and then you're chasing from behind and you're shooting threes to get back into the game. And sometimes that gets you back in. And sometimes that just gets you further behind. Yeah. I, in retrospect, I could totally say that's why I was the only person who picked Randolph Macon to beat Muhlenberg last weekend, but I really did legitimately think that they were going to win that game. So I think that makes me, 12 and 4 plus 5 and 3 is 17 and 7 through the first 24 games. Everybody is significantly better than that. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who cares, Ryan Tips is doing the best right now. 21 and 3. Adam Turr, 20 and 4. Frank, Wally Wabash, and the Logan Hansen ratings are uh, have gotten 20 of the first 24 matchups correct. All of them 14 in, in round one and six last week. And then I'm 19 and 5. You're 17 and 7. You know the the some of the the toss ups. It's going to be almost all toss ups from here on out. So I don't know how you get back in this thing, Pat. You may just have to crown Ryan Tips or or Adam Turr the the king of postseason prognostication. Now, if you want to crown them, then crown their ass. So coming up Saturday, of course, we got the four games we just talked about them. Keith, uh, you mentioned that you're going to be in Baltimore in the Homewood neighborhood at uh, Johns Hopkins, and uh, I know. Neither you nor I are in charge of this, but maybe you should tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on on Saturday. Well, I'd love to tell you more if I knew more. That's true. Okay, so we're recording this on Wednesday evening. Uh, there are some details yet to be buttoned up, but uh, no. What I what I do know is that we'll be on uh, we'll be on from Johns Hopkins and pregame and postgame. And uh, the the cool thing about postgame is not only we'll be able to wrap up that game, but we'll have some insight into what happened. Uh, in alliance by that point and the other two games will still be going on so around um, around three o'clock we'll be we'll be live yeah and uh, at eleven thirty, i believe eastern in the morning so keep an eye out for uh, frank rossi keith mcmillan greg thomas for you live from johns hopkins university getting you ready for everything going on in division three football on saturday and this was d3football.com around the nation podcast number 228 released on november 30th of 2018 Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of this coverage throughout the weekend. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or you know anywhere you get podcasts because that will help other football fans find it. You can also leave comments for us on the blog page. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, and you can find his music and more of his stuff at djmentos.com. Thanks to our correspondents, Adam Turr and Frank Rossi, and also our guest, Gary Foshing. 
as well as Sports Information Director Ryan Klickner for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my intrepid co-host, we'll say that, Keith McMillan. I'm intrepid. Woo! You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. Keith, what's the weather supposed to be like in Baltimore on Saturday? I heard oh. not good. <laughs> he slams um, something to the desk. That's not good. I don't think the weather is going to be good in Baltimore on Saturday. And if you go back, I guess a couple of podcasts now, there was a Jim Margraff interview, who is the uh, he's the Johns Hopkins head coach, and he talked about how they thought, you know, maybe they would be missing some of their offense if the weather's bad, and and they were able to to use all of it in round two against Frostburg. Will they be able to use the entire offense against RPI? Throwing in the rain is you're throwing a heavy ball. It's uh, it's just weird when it hits your hands. Everything about it is weird, and so you, you start to adjust the game plan. It's not always the worst thing in the world because sometimes you catch a team off guard, but uh, weather could be a factor. And in that particular stadium, too, the way the wind blows through, uh, I've seen a game there before where kicks are uh, are greatly affected by wind, so rain and, and wind could be a factor. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.